The trading system itself, I think, is still holding up. But obviously, the huge, big, looming problem is the U.S.-China trade war. What role will trade play in the global economy of the future? Can the multilateral rules-based trading system survive? Or will nationalism and protectionism lead to a world of trade barriers and trading blocks? These are some of the questions tackled by the AIG Global Trade Series 2020, a series of podcasts brought to you by AIG in partnership with some of the world's leading centers of expertise on global trade. The series moderator is Rem Korteweg of the Klingendal Institute. This is Rem Korteweg, Senior Research Fellow at the Klingendal Institute, bringing you another conversation for the AIG Global Trade Series 2020. Today's conversation is about the slow death of multilateralism. Can the WTO or the G20 do anything about it? And I'm joined today by two eminent experts on the international trade system. On the one hand, I have Professor Jennifer Hillman with me. She's a senior fellow for trade and international political economy at the Council on Foreign Relations. She's professor from practice at Georgetown University's Law Center and was, until 2012, one of the seven members of the WTO's appellate body. Jennifer is an expert on trade policy, trade law, and foreign policy, and knows the WTO and the international trading system inside out. And secondly, I'm joined by Rufus Yurksa. Uh, Ambassador Yurksa is the former Deputy U.S. Trade Representative. He is also the Deputy DG at the WTO and currently President of the National Foreign Trade Council. Together, Jennifer and Rufus, and I hope I counted it correctly, have more than seven decades of deep experience about the international trade system. Welcome to you both. Thank you. Thank you. Good to be here. The conversation today, what we're going to try to do is focus on three general themes. One is how is the international trading system coping with the global pandemic connected with COVID-19? What is the role of the G20 and the WTO? And secondly, I think we need to look at this very important question about the structural problems facing trade multilateralism and its institutions, most notably the WTO. And then finally, because both of you are astute watchers of U.S. trade policy, I'd like to focus a little bit on the role of the United States regarding the future of the WTO. And so let's dive right in. It seems that the global trade system is at risk of falling apart. And the COVID-19 pandemic isn't making this any better. The IMF expects global trade to fall by anywhere between 13 and 32% this year. That comes on top of concerns regarding the US-China trade war, the return of tariffs, increases in protectionist measures. So how gloomy should we be about the trading system? Jennifer, perhaps to you first, in what shape do we find the international rules-based trading system today? Well, I think we find it is at risk, but at the same time, at this very moment, holding relatively steady with the very large exception, and I will make it very clear that it is a very large exception of the U.S.-China trade war. Really, the fundamentals of the rules of the system are by and large being adhered to. In other words, countries are still turning to the WTO to adjudicate disputes, even though the appellate body is no longer functioning. Countries are still engaged in having the WTO serve as the clearinghouse for their schedules and their commitments. Recently, the WTO has begun cataloging all the actions taken by countries to impose or lift tariffs on medical goods or to impose or lift export bans on on goods. Countries are still in line to join the WTO or in the accession process. So at, at this moment, the structure is holding. The walls may be crumbling and there may be holes in the roof, but the trading system itself, I think, is still holding up. But obviously, the huge, big, looming problem is the U.S.-China trade war. What you're saying is there's a, there's a glass half full story to tell. Rufus, do you agree? Yeah, I generally agree with everything Jennifer said. You know, the GATT WTO system has faced many difficulties in its past history and at times predictions that the system was becoming irrelevant and was going to die. I remember a famous headline in 1987 during the Uruguay round 
from a, an MIT economist, GATT is dead. Uh, of course, out of that came the Uruguay round and the strengthening and expanding of the multilateral system. I think obviously we are facing a period of immense challenge. I think two major factors. One is a general change in direction vis-a-vis multilateralism by the Trump administration, which has lessened significantly U.S. support for and leadership in the system. And then, of course, the challenge of China with an entirely different kind of economic model, which does challenge some of the fundamental rules. But as Jennifer said, the fundamental rules are sound and have been working well, and a lot of the regular processes of the WTO are working well. We, We have to remember that you know, many of its most important rules are things that are not in dispute between countries, like the principle of national treatment, and like many of the other disciplines in the 20 plus agreements that the WTO administers. And the last thing I'd say is that if you look at prior crises, we haven't had anything like the pandemic since the WTO came into existence. But if you look at prior economic crises like the 2007 downturn, no, the WTO did extraordinarily well in helping to control the growth of protectionism. And we're going to have a similar test, particularly on the back end of this pandemic as as countries are recovering. The problem right now on the front end of the pandemic tends to be over export restrictions um, and other things that countries are doing in response to the political pressures they have on how to how they handle COVID. But once COVID is over and countries are focusing on economic reform, I think we will have a lot of challenges to the system. Use of import protection to get industries back going again in a, in a misguided effort to do that. Countries will try to use tariffs, subsidies, and a lot of other things. And so we will see how the WTO phases that test. And then as Jennifer says, the U.S. China relationship, can the trade war be put back into uh, a more kind of multilateral context? That's really going to be a big challenge for the system. If anything, to me, the the COVID crisis has done a couple of things. One, it is pushed on the issue of what can and should the WTO be doing to try to help add some resiliency and some redundancy to global supply chains? Because we've clearly seen a real push on how comfortable countries are relying on others. And again, the particular one is the other being China for critical pharmaceutical products, medical devices, protective equipment, uh, where China has been traditionally a very major, major supplier. So on the one hand, you have a lot of those issues. And on the other hand, I think it's really underscoring how critical it is going to be going forward to fix the WTO. Uh, Because if we fix the WTO, then you get back to the idea that the WTO can help with greater economic growth, can help with reducing unemployment, can help with lifting people out of poverty. And if you don't fix it, then to me, you really do run the risk of having long-term sort of stagnation globally, or even a decline into a level of disorder and chaos, where that uncertainty or chaos really does create tremendous drag on economic growth. Right. Let's talk a little bit about the structural problems a little bit later on. I want to focus first on what the WTO and the G20 have done in the immediate aftermath of the outbreak of the pandemic. And you see that uh, both the G20 and the WTO came out with very strong statements, statements pushing back against protectionist tendencies. There was a show of solidarity. There was a G20 statement basically saying, we're going to try to keep global supply chains open. That was mirrored by the WTO putting out a statement of 27 of its members together with the EU not to adopt protectionist policies on agriculture. But what more can these two behemoths of international trade, the G20 and the WTO, do at the moment? Again, from my end, I think they're doing a fair number of things, but what else they can do is to encourage, I think, more countries to join the efforts to eliminate tariffs on all medical goods, soaps, disinfectants, you know, everything needed to fight the pandemic. Again, if there could be more and more countries agreeing to 
either permanently or at least temporarily withdraw any tariffs on on trade in those items. That's one thing. Secondly, again, to do more to discourage countries from enacting export bans, whether it's on medical goods or food, and then to ensure that countries, if they do put in bans, they adhere to the G20 minister's declaration that made it clear that whatever measures are taken must be, and these are really critical, targeted, proportionate, transparent and temporary. There you've already seen the EU lift some of its export restrictions, sort of consistent with that notion of temporary. I think a third area where the WTO can play a really important role is to ensure that once we do get either treatment drugs or vaccines, that they be distributed efficiently and fairly around the world, and that the WTO makes sure to remind countries of the flexibilities over patent rules that might be necessary to ensure that intellectual property rights don't get in the way of widespread distribution of these drugs or vaccines once they're out there and on the market. And Rufus, are you happy with what the G20 and the WTO have done so far? Well, I I think we have to realize that there are limits to what either the G20 is a a more consultative and coordination mechanism and the WTO as a a rule book can do when every country is sort of feeling a need to fight the pandemic as best it can under its own unique circumstances. And, you know, obviously it is helpful to have this commitment on avoiding unnecessary use of export restrictions. I agree with what Jennifer has said about the need uh, to commit to further reduction of tariffs on things that are needed for the pandemic. But we have to look, I think, longer term at building some confidence that the system is responsive to changes in the world economy. And there are a lot of changes in the world economy being driven by the pandemic. If you think about the digital economy and its growing importance, I think one of the key areas for the WTO to work in order to show people that it is going to be of increasing relevance coming out of this is on digital trade, the digital economy, e-commerce and other things. And there is a process underway that was agreed to on a plurilateral basis, but with, you know, most large economies participating in it to try to create an extension of the principles of the WTO into digital trade. That would be a very important area. The other thing is, I think Jennifer's absolutely right. There's a grand opportunity here when it comes to how we fight the pandemic, the distribution of vaccines around the world, the coordination of global health as part of world commerce. And I think the WTO ought to be reaching out with other institutions, particularly the WHO, to see what kind of coordinated rules and agreements we can have that can help to make sure that once there is a vaccine or drugs that you have mechanisms for rapid worldwide deployment, that you deal with the intellectual property challenges, and that you don't have countries taking competing trade-related actions that actually would make things worse rather than better. And for what it's worth, I think on that point, it's interesting to think about what the WTO, you know, in terms of WTO members learned in light of the HIV AIDS crisis. Again, sort of 20 years ago, when HIV AIDS was at its peak, you really did see a huge effort within the WTO to push on the fact that at that time, the drugs for treating it were costing, you know, more than $10,000 per person per treatment, you know, largely unaffordable by the millions of people that had HIV AIDS. Out of that crisis came a number of really important things that are sort of still in place. And the question is whether they're going to appropriately kick in now that we're going to need them to fight this COVID. First of all, you had a lot of long-term sort of trilateral cooperation between the WTO, the World Health Organization, and WIPO, the World Intellectual Property Organization, to try to create patent pools so that we would pool patent information, to try to create a lot of um, synergies around research and development to share a lot of that more effectively, to try to encourage more licensing of whatever technologies and patents may come about, and to, again, allow a lot more licensed production of drugs and pharmaceuticals around the world. So the hope is that we learned a lot coming out of that crisis, that the WTO is an institution and its members learned a lot. And so I'm actually hopeful that there is a lot more cooperation and coordination mechanisms out there and in place. We, we develop new institutions and new mechanisms of funding that may really serve us well. 
To the extent that we now see the WTO trying to respond to the pandemic and trying to keep supply chains open, trying to, as you say, sort of share information to ensure that there are no export restrictions on medical equipment and all that. Do you think that part of this is going to be added to the WTO's longer term to-do list? In other words, are there things that we're experiencing now because we're in the middle of a crisis that we're we're relying on the WTO to address that are now going to stay a part of the WTO's agenda. Just to name an example, you mentioned this renewed emphasis on resilience or the discussion about how do you manage probably the new push towards more stockpiling or ensuring that there aren't any tariffs on trade in medical supplies. How do you see that, Rufus? First of all, I think we're going to have to have a catalog of the kinds of new challenges the WTO system will have that will come out of this pandemic. Some will be opportunities, and you've just mentioned a few of them, like, for example, trying to help coordinate a WTO, WHO, and other international institutions uh, in an approach to stockpiling and how trade rules work together with uh, national policies to ensure that we could respond to a future pandemic by having stockpiles in different markets and then maintaining open trade between countries, maintaining the flow of goods when a pandemic strikes. Because as we've learned from this pandemic, it hits in different countries in different regions of the world at different times. So that kind of sort of regulatory structure for stockpiling could be something that the WTO could work on. But then there are other things that, let's face it, are going to be big dangers to the system. And I would cite probably first and foremost subsidy behavior. Historically, the WTO has had important rules about subsidies. It has formed a lot of the basis for the dispute settlement system. But more importantly, in areas not just like agriculture, but industrial trade as well, there's been a lot of progress since the Uruguay round in in strengthening subsidy disciplines. But every country in the world is going to be under enormous pressure. Just look what's happening in the United States. I know it's happening in Europe. Fundamental infrastructure types of things to get economies back moving again and to address the deficits that countries feel they have in basic infrastructure and in uh the need to adapt to the changing economy. So there are going to be a lot of disputes over subsidies. I don't think the subsidy rules are adequate today. Uh, I don't think we quite know exactly what kind of consensus we can gain in the WTO system to reform them, because at the heart of it will be the big dispute between China on the one hand, US, Europe, and other more market-oriented countries on the other hand about state-controlled entities and subsidies and about the relationship between the state and the private sector in areas like public health and technology. I think Rufus is totally right on this one. And, and it's interesting because I do think COVID then may make a lot of countries rethink what they had been saying and doing on subsidies. Because I think if you look at, for example, there has been a trilateral effort between the United States, the European Union, and Japan to try to rethink disciplines on subsidies. And a lot of that effort was directed at the concerns that the current rules don't work when it comes to China. And so there'd been a big effort to try to rethink this issue of how do we define what is a subsidy in the first place? And then secondly, to try to rethink what kind of evidence do you have to have to show it? And some effort to think again about what are the right remedies. Now it's interesting because the shoe is going to move onto the other foot, if you will, in the sense that the United States, Europe, and many other of the developed countries are themselves going to need to start engaging in a lot more subsidization in order to create economic growth and economic recovery coming out of this pandemic. And so there may be a second rethinking of what exactly do we mean and want out of subsidy disciplines. The other thing that I think Rufus mentioned earlier is, is this comment about confidence, because that to me is going to be the real thing to watch, is what and how does the WTO do to restore confidence? Because when you think about it, when a country decides, okay, I need to put an export ban on a particular product, they're doing that because they do not have confidence um, that if they don't keep whatever it is that they're making at home at home, that they won't be able to get it from their trading partners. And that lack of confidence that I can't rely on my trading partners when I really need them 
if more and more countries do lose that confidence and feel they need to create export bans, then the trading system, I think, is in real trouble. And so that will be another sort of interesting litmus test to watch uh, whether the WTO can continue to really put its foot down and say that export bans are not the right road to go down and whether countries will heed that advice. Yeah. And just to go back on this point about subsidies and state control and state ownership, there's no question that we already saw this trend before the pandemic hit, certainly in the U.S. and in a lot of other countries, towards a more authoritarian type of approach to governing, which was including state intervention. Now, in the case of the Trump administration, a lot of that intervention tended to be on the import side, on tariffs and things. But certainly, there's going to be huge political pressures in the U.S. and others to adopt a much more state-driven model for the economy, partly because the private sector will be on its heels and the state is the only mechanism that can churn enough activity. I mean, you also already see how things like the deployment of the Defense Production Act in the U.S. is leading to state management of private resources. Before we went into this pandemic, a lot of the focus of the U.S. and the Europeans was on pushing China towards a different model. The question I have now is that really going to be the pressure that's going to be brought to bear on China? You know, as old trade negotiators, Jennifer and I know that you can't force a large power in the WTO system to do something to change WTO rules unless you have some leverage. And the leverage historically for the U.S. has been to negotiate other market opening deals in order to push the WTO system forward. In large part, the progress we made in the Uruguay round was because of the response to the U.S. deciding to create NAFTA. That's changed significantly now in the U.S. because this administration has backed away from TPP, for example. TTIP went uh, went up in smoke. So the question becomes, what pressure do the Chinese feel to move towards cooperation with the U.S. and Europe in the WTO system? If I can just add, what you're saying, Rufus, is not just that this is a consequence of the nature of the of the current U.S. administration. It's also very much now the trends that have emerged as a consequence of the pandemic, where traditionally very liberal countries pushing for open market access are now finding themselves to be more in the game of pushing subsidies and being more statist in terms of intervening in their own economies just to keep their economies afloat. So aren't we moving towards the perfect storm? in that respect? Well, I think we're going to have, for a period of time after the pandemic, we're going to have a lot of pressure for state intervention and all kinds of things. I think eventually, in order to really recover, there has to be a robust private sector. If you look at the largest exercise in sort of statism that the U.S. ever underwent, it was coming out of the Great Depression, World War II. But once World War II ended, there was a realization that a lot of these fuel of, of state activity had to give way to a greater private sector and that international markets and global structures for doing it were important. And I think we will have to see a similar trend. It's going to take a long time because we are going to be facing a period where state involvement in the economy, even in the most dynamic free market capitalist countries, is going to be significant. The other one that's happening at the same time is this push to say, okay, for things like medical supplies and medical goods, we want them, you know, in the United States, it's made in America. Again, we don't want to be reliant on China, on India, on the global trading system to provide those critical needs. And again, the other thing that I think may happen is countries are going to begin to redefine what is a critical need item on which they will decide they don't want to rely on the trading system. They want to be entirely self-sufficient. Whether and how you can ever achieve that is another question, but I think that is the other trend that we're seeing coming out of COVID is this is this push to say we need to be self-sufficient in and the list of items that people that countries will feel they need to be self-sufficient in uh, may at this point in time be growing. And, and I think that's very dangerous, uh, not because greater self-sufficiency isn't an admirable objective, but if it's achieved through artificial means that don't really comport with the whole concept of comparative advantage and, and simple economics, it's not going to be sustainable. And, you know, in the end, actually, the notion that you can have complete 
autarky in an area like healthcare is really contrary to what will be needed in the future, where you need actually intensified global cooperation on research, on how to develop new drugs, on the best methods for treating diseases and for building up your healthcare system. And so if we all start turning inward in all of those areas, try to create a completely self-sustaining supply mechanism, I think we're actually less prepared to handle the next pandemic. And, and one of the things the WTO system can do is help to demonstrate for countries, as Jennifer said, you should have the confidence that you can still reach across borders and have a lot of cooperation in research and development, in distribution of needed supplies and all the rest. And that will actually be better and that will help to underscore the need for some kind of rules-based trading system. Today's conversation is about the slow death of multilateralism. Can the WTO or the G20 do anything about it? On the one hand, I have Professor Jennifer Hillman with me. And secondly, I'm joined by Rufus Yerksa. We're going to take a quick break. At a time when the multilateral rules-based order is under threat, conversations about global trade and its contribution to prosperity have never been more important. If you'd like to listen to more podcasts on global trade, search AIG Global Trade Series 2020. This series of podcasts is brought to you by AIG, the International Institute of Economic Law at Georgetown Law School, Chatham House, the Klingendahl Institute, the Jacques Delors Institute, the Lee Kuan Yew School of Public Policy at the National University of Singapore, and the International Chamber of Commerce, UK and France. The Bertelsmann Stiftung is knowledge partner of the series. We're back from our break. Jennifer Hillman, Rufus Yerksa, I want to thank you very much for participating in this conversation. So if you listen to all this and you're sitting at home and thinking of applying to this new position that has opened up for the director general of the WTO. What are the answers that you come up with in terms of, say you want to give a new boost of confidence to the WTO. Say you want to, what you were talking about, Rufus, say you want to push back against this trend towards more self-sufficiency, toward a trend towards more autarky. What's the recipe that you come up with? In other words, what should be on the agenda of the new director general of the WTO? And how do you regain that relevance and that confidence needed to preserve the international rules-based system? There's no question that whoever is chosen to fill the current director general's shoes has got a very full plate. But to me, the answer to your question starts with a couple of things. One, I think it is going to be important for the members of the WTO to to some degree, re-examine the goals of the WTO to really think about this question of, is the WTO an enduring institution as a rules-based system? And my own sense is, I think the answer to that is yes, the WTO will endure. Why? Because the goals of the WTO are enduring. If you think about it, it is global economic growth. Well, what do we need right now in the middle of this pandemic or coming out of it? We need global economic growth. Another sort of enduring goal of the WTO is that trade be conducted under the rule of law. Again, we've just been talking about how important it is for companies and countries to have confidence in the trading system. Well, that means the rule of law has got to be sort of reinforced and underscored. What is another enduring principle of the WTO is basic fairness for all engaged in trade. Again, we've, we've mentioned, I mean, when, when and if we get a vaccine, it is going to be critical that there be a perceived fairness in access um, to those vaccines and to those drugs. So part of it is, I think, uh, really helping everyone rethink and re-emphasize why did we go into this WTO in the first place and do those continue to be goals worth fighting for? Then you're going to have to think about the mechanics. Clearly, one of the problems at the WTO is it's become too hard to reach new agreements. It's a consensus-based institution. It doesn't reach agreements unless there is a consensus among all of the members. It's become too hard to do that. 
The executive function, uh, again, is supposed to be engaging in providing transparency and timely notifications and ensuring a complete distribution of information. Again, those notifications are often late, uh, not timely. And so again, there's a lot of executive functions that need improving. And obviously at its core, the WTO is also a dispute settlement system, and that needs to be fixed as well. So there's a lot of confidence building that needs to be done, and then there's a lot of structural reform issues that need to be addressed. And Rufus, you you mentioned earlier that one of the big challenges facing the WTO or the international trade system is basically the tension between the US and China and the fact that they come at trade from a very different angle. One is liberal and open-minded in terms of open markets, and the other is more authoritarian and state-driven. Can those tensions be resolved? Is that something that you can expect the new director general to deliver on? And if so, how do you do that? Yeah, well, I'm not sure which one's moving faster towards more state control. But uh, let me just say this, that to go back to the discussion about the director general and agree with a lot of what Jennifer said, no director general can possibly succeed unless the key powers in the WTO want them to succeed, unless there is a shared commitment to try to use the WTO system to work out some of your differences. That's the first thing. The threshold question for choosing any director general is not, you know, is this person got all the answers who can make everybody do the right thing, but whether the the great powers of the system, and including the way a lot of the leaders in the emerging world are prepared to give some support to and cooperation with an effort to work in the WTO system. So I think what you need first and foremost in a director general is somebody who's really good at what we used to call the good offices of the director general. That is how to be a broker between these very, very different systems and how to be able to speak a language to all of them that enables them to start to see a common purpose in going into some of these areas we've been talking about. But that's only going to happen And this may get us to a discussion of the U.S. election. That's only going to happen if coming out of the next election, the U.S. really has a foundation politically at home to say we want the WTO system to work. I think most of the leadership in Congress feels that way now. We want to move forward with the system. We want the U.S. to be a leader in the system. I do question whether the Trump administration is prepared to take on that role in a more meaningful way. We'll have to see what happens in the election. I'm sure that if Joe Biden is elected, there's going to be a rethinking of Trump's unique brand of trade policy. I think even if Trump's reelected in a second term, uh, he may have to face the reality that you can't simply throw out this system. You have to figure out how to make it work. So hopefully we can have a discussion about that. But I think that when we look for a new director general, we first and foremost have to look for how much support is there among the leading powers to make that director general successful. I also think there's going to be a bit of a tension in terms of what kind of a person do you want? Do you want someone that is fundamentally a good listener and a good communicator, or do you want someone that is a more forceful advocate, proponent, recommender, pusher for a particular approach to a given issue? Historically, as Rufus said, this is a member-driven institution. So normally, you know, you think of the director general as simply sort of trying to listen and communicate and refine and find consensus, as opposed to a top-down, driven from the top, the director general has a plan, if you will. And, and I think you're already seeing a bit of a debate within the members of the WTO as to which, you know, and how far they want to move in any given direction, and a concern about whether at this moment in crisis, whether you need a more top-down, here's the agenda, here's the plan, get in line behind me, or whether you need someone that's better at building up from the bottom, creating a consensus among the members first. And again, I think there's an open debate about which approach would be more successful at this point in time. I'm hoping, Jennifer, that those two aren't mutually exclusive, that you could find a person who maybe at the outset does a lot of listening because you need to get a foundation for whatever bold direction you're going to move in as director general, but then somebody who's willing to make bold recommendations once they've had time to synthesize the the various views and work as a go-between to see if they can get consensus. And I agree with you. Somebody who's too top-down from the very start and doesn't listen to the membership is going to fail. 
but also someone who simply is a passive listener and message taker who isn't ready to put some political courage on the table and the process is going to fail also. Now, we know from last year's discussions that the United States has been very critical of the functioning of the WTO, and you've touched upon some of the issues already, not in the least, of course, the fact that the United States decided to block the appellate body in the dispute settlement mechanism. If when we talk about the role of the United States, Rufus, you mentioned that it's absolutely critical. It depends on the way in which the US will lean coming out of the next elections. What do you expect? I mean, if I can ask you to look into your crystal ball, in a second trumpet administration, will we see more of what we've seen over the previous four years? Or do you have some hope that there will be a reawakened Trump who then realizes that there is value in this institution? Or is that a false man's hope? It seems that in Europe, people are kind of holding their breath and they're kind of trying to find ways to work around some of the policies that the Trump administration has unleashed on the WTO, not in the least by setting up an alternative system to adjudicate disputes, to allow a quasi-appellate body system to function. But that is all considered to be quite temporary. And people are worried if there's going to be another four years of Trump, we don't know what will happen to the WTO. Will he stay in? Will he decide to formally withdraw? What When you read the tea leaves of the Trump campaign and perhaps sentiment in the Republican Party, what would a second Trump administration do to the WTO? Well, I, I want to defer to Jennifer, who knows more about the dispute settlement system than, than just about anyone, and have her talk about what the prospects are for actually finding a way through on some of these specific issues about how the appellate body procedures and rules could be adapted and how you could get a deal with the Trump administration. But let me, before Jennifer speaks to that, let me make a, a broader point about a second Trump term. You know, one would hope that once he no longer had to face re-election, his trade policy would change. But I'm not at all confident that that would be the case. Uh, I think that he has a very, very strong predisposition that multilateralism is not a good thing and that he prefers a a much more mercantilist, power-based, bilateral ad hoc approach, which doesn't rely on the rule of law and which wouldn't commit the U.S. to participate and abide by any new set of agreements. So why would other countries negotiate with him if they're not convinced that the rule of law means anything? I think clearly the Biden administration would have a different approach to that. I think you can just look at the fact that in other areas, Biden doesn't talk much about trade, but in other areas like climate change and WHO, there's huge criticism by the Biden camp of Trump's departure from multilateral cooperation and leadership. And I think that to me, this is a pivotal election, probably for a lot of reasons, but one of them will be whether the U.S. can recommit itself to leadership in a multilateral world recognizing that even a Biden administration is going to have to take a very tough and determined approach to pressuring China towards change. The real issue to me is, does the U.S. want to try to beat China by out china in China, or does it want to do it by reasserting the principles uh, of free market capitalism and working with our allies to achieve that goal? Jennifer, I mean, to Rufus's point, is there a way out of the maze uh, regarding the deadlock over the dispute settlement mechanism in a second Trump administration? I think it's hard in a second Trump administration because I think they are very far dug in on the notion that it's the appellate body uh, that has broken, in essence, the grand bargain. And for the Trump administration, the grand bargain was that the United States would agree to join the WTO, including its binding dispute settlement mechanism, and effectively joining an international court, even though the United States refuses to be a full participant in the International Court of Justice refuses to be a member of the International Criminal Court, refuses to accept jurisdiction of the Inter-American Court of Human Rights or any other international court, and yet the United States joined the WTO. Why? The argument is clearly because the understanding was that the WTO dispute settlement system would not and could not take away any rights that the United States had or add any obligations on the United States beyond what was in the actual text of the rules of the Uruguay Round Agreement. And the Trump administration's argument now is it's the appellate body that broke the bargain. 
uh, the appellate body that took away the right of the United States, for example, to practice what they call zeroing in the anti-dumping realm, or the appellate body that took away the right of the United States to consider goods made in state-owned enterprises in China to be uh, subject to disciplines on subsidies, and that the appellate body has taken away these rights or added these obligations, and therefore all bets are off. The bargain is done. The United States no longer has to, in the words of the Trump administration, give up any of its sovereignty to the WTO because the appellate body broke the bargain. So we're starting from this very difficult place. Um, and so the question is, you know, is there any maneuvering room? My own view is yes. And the reason why I say yes is because some of the concerns of the United States about the appellate body are very fixable. They're kind of procedural, mechanical, technical issues that can be readily fixed. The bigger issue about whether or not there's rights or obligations that are going to be taken away or added to is a lot more complicated. But again, there are steps that can be taken to address those. And then you think about what is the affirmative agenda of the Trump administration at the WTO. And it is things like redefining who can consider themselves to be a developing country for purposes of getting special rules. It is efforts by the United States to increase the sanctions, if you will, or the penalties for countries that don't provide the required transparency that they're required, that don't provide notices, etc. So I can easily see a package of reforms where the appellate body gets amended and reformed in many ways to address some of the concerns by the United States. And at the same time, the United States might achieve some of the goals that it wants with respect to developing country status, with respect to transparency, and some other issues included in there potentially would be some of the new disciplines that Rufus mentioned earlier on how we're going to think about disciplines on subsidies that would get to a lot of the hardcore issues that the United States has with respect to China. And you put this whole grand bargain together, and yes, you could see a package moving forward. And if you then think about a Biden administration, would Biden do something totally different than what Trump is doing? Probably the style would, but I can also imagine that if there is considered to be some movement inside the WTO because of the current US policy stance, that Biden might want to push that envelope as well in his own regards. Or would we go back to business as usual? I don't think we go back to business as usual. Um, I think at a bare minimum, a couple of key changes I would see from a Biden administration. First of all, it would be the tone and the attitude about multilateral institutions, because I think right now there's a lot of skepticism among many countries about taking the United States' word for anything, because they have seen the Trump administration break bargain after bargain, take quick unilateral action that is against the rules. So at a bare minimum, I would see a Biden administration taking a much more positive view towards multilateralism and multilateral organizations and generally about abiding by the rules. So that attitude shift, I think, is very important. Substantively, I'm not sure that there would be a huge change. I think a Biden administration would also want to see reform to the WTO appellate body, reform to the idea of who's a developing country, reform to subsidy disciplines, reform to the transparency rules. So some of the substance I, I don't see as a significant change. With respect to China, I would, because I think the Biden administration, I think, would take a view that, yes, we have to be tough in our approach to China, but we also have to be smart. And we also have to bring in our allies, that the go-it-alone approach by the Trump administration is something that I think the Biden administration would immediately jettison. I very much agree with that assessment. I think the big question of a second Trump administration, which I'm sure Jennifer has in mind also is even if countries offered up certain kinds of changes to the appellate body and to the interpretation of the appellate body's mandate, does the Trump administration really want the system to work or do they want to further degrade it because they really fundamentally don't want to be bound by the WTO system? That to me is, is a question nobody's going to know the answer to until after the election when it, it might be too late. I don't think there's any doubt, but that in a new Biden administration, as Jennifer says, would still have a lot of the same substantive concerns, but would also have an opportunity to restore confidence in a way that would be very difficult for a second Trump administration to do because countries are going to be looking to, you know, what's the U.S.'s basic orientation towards global leadership and multilateral cooperation. Uh, and I think 
probably Biden is going to do exactly what Jennifer said, which is, I want to be very tough with China, but I want to do it in a way which coordinates more with our allies, which uses the rules of the WTO system, and which offers China the opportunity to move in our direction without fear that that won't stand up. I mean, one of the real questions anybody negotiating with the U.S. has now is, does any negotiation really matter if the rule of law doesn't matter? So that's something that I think will be really put to the test if Biden is elected. Great. One of my final questions has to do um, not with the United States, but with one of those allies, Rufus, that you talked about, namely the European Union. The EU currently feels itself as um, the last man standing, if you will, in, in terms of being the champion for trade multilateralism. Of course, there are other countries, but as one of the major trading blocks, it's very much a role it's taken on, almost like a Superman's cape, waving the flag of trade multilateralism. Discourse inside the EU is now about building a trade policy based on open strategic autonomy. Open meaning completely based on investing in an open rules-based trading system. What can we expect from the EU given the uncertainties regarding the way in which U.S. trade policy will develop vis-a-vis the WTO and the international trade institutions? I don't think there's any question, but that if you look at the whole history of the development of the system. I mean, Europe has been central to it, but more importantly, the U.S.-European bilateral relationship has been essential to it. These are the two, if you take the EU as a whole, in the U.S., it's still the largest bilateral trade and investment relationship. It's been characterized by incredibly open investment in particular. And although there have been trade frictions and there are certain areas where those frictions become greater. We, we all know about agriculture, but also areas like public health and even some of the sort of champion industries like the aircraft sector. But, you know, I don't think it would take that much work, particularly since there has been this breakdown in trust. I don't think it would take that much work of a new president like Biden to kind of reach out and restore that confidence and work together with the Europeans. I do think that there will still be different perspectives on certain issues. One good example is the privacy issue in the whole digital economy space and how we counterbalance privacy for the need for openness. But I actually think that when it comes to some of the issues dealing with China, it would be relatively easy for the U.S. and Europe and others to get on the same page and to push the WTO system in the right way. I don't know what you think, Jennifer, but you know, obviously Jennifer and I lived through a history of very contentious disputes in the dispute settlement system between the U.S. and Europe, but those aren't the real drivers of the problems in the dispute settlement system now. It's much more over the Trump administration's problems with trade remedies, which tends to be more with U.S.-Asia trade. But I think that there are good chances for the U.S. and Europe to actually build a new common sense of purpose, and I think Japan would be instrumental in joining that, and I think you could recreate a lot of the dynamics that existed back in the Uruguay round between a large number of countries who still believe in a trading system that is strongly rules-oriented. I would agree. I mean, I I think the U.S.-EU relationship, because of how deeply cross-invested we are, I mean, the level of foreign direct investment as between the United States and the European Union, you know, is, is... you know, is in the trillions of dollars and reflects, you know, a very deep and abiding commitment to that transatlantic reliance and that transatlantic relationship. So in that sense, you have this. And on the other hand, the number of potential irritants, I would say, particularly if there is a second Trump administration, are very, very worrisome. You constantly hear this potential threat to impose tariffs on autos, which again would be highly disruptive to that trade. You are now increasingly hearing a lot of friction over the potential of taxes on digital services. So those that potentially creates another very large friction. Um, you already have the longstanding disputes with respect to subsidies to Boeing and Airbus. So the concern would be in a second Trump administration, whether the irritants 
overwhelm the abiding and fundamental and deep level of cooperation. I think in a Biden administration, I would agree with Rufus. I think it would be quite quick and quite easy to see a Biden administration reaching out very strongly to Europe to repair that major alliance and to move through these irritants as quickly as possible in order to get the US and Europe back on the same page and back into collectively asserting some leadership at the WTO and other multilateral institutions. Just to go to to Jennifer's points, I think it would be relatively easy for a Biden administration on the autos issue because nobody really, not the U.S. auto industry, not the European auto industry, not most consumers, not the political bodies in either Europe or the U.S., not the U.S. Congress or European political bodies really want to see a trade war in, in the auto sector, for example. And that one should be relatively easy to take off the table. I agree with her what she said about there are areas of risk. I think this digital services tax that is spreading in Europe is going to be a major problem because it is seen as a raid on the U.S. Treasury, not just on U.S. companies, because a lot of the tax revenues are things that are generated by activity in the U.S. and could be taxed in the U.S. And it's a whole new concept of how to define the nexus for taxation. And there is work in the OECD to avoid that. I would hope that on the European side, there's leadership in in reaching some multilateral solution through the OECD. I think all of that would be easier in a Biden administration because if Biden was moving more towards restoring multilateralism in trade, it would be easier for the Europeans to then do the same in the tax space. So that, I think, could be a very promising accommodation by both sides in a Biden administration. And next year, when we have this conversation again, will um, the United States still be a member of the WTO? I say absolutely yes. While there have been pushes within the Congress and others to withdraw the United States from the WTO, I do not see there being a groundswell of support for that approach. Uh, I think, yes, the United States will remain a member of the WTO. I agree entirely. I think there will be the usual sound and fury. I think Trump certainly likes to play up this card for his political base. But I think realistically, the implications of doing it in the midst of an election would actually be negative even for Trump. So uh, I don't see him making that move. And I don't even if he did, I see the Congress being fiercely resistant. And it's, it's not at all clear you can withdraw from the WTO without Congress uh, basically accepting that. Great. That's a firm prediction from from both of you. We can take that to the bank. With that, I want to thank you both for what I thought was a fascinating conversation. We talked about the WTO and the G20 in the context of dealing with the COVID-19 pandemic. We talked about US-China tensions, some of the structural problems facing the WTO, but also the positive notion that the WTO's goals are enduring. And because of that, the institution is likely to endure despite some of the problems it faces. And we talked about the U.S. presidential elections and how it may impact U.S. policy towards the WTO. With that, Jennifer Hillman, Rufus Yerksa, I want to thank you very much for participating in this conversation. Thank you very much. Great. Thanks. The AIG Global Trade Series is an international partnership between AIG, the International Institute of Economic Law at Georgetown Law School, Chatham House, the Klingendahl Institute, the Jacques Delors Institute, the Lee Kuan Yew School of Public Policy at the National University of Singapore, and the International Chamber of Commerce, UK and France. The Bertelsmann Stiftung is knowledge partner of the series. To access articles and interviews from partners in the Global Trade Series and to listen to more podcasts on global trade, search AIG Global Trade Series 2020.